come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Hello, you have reached the Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneurs podcast where we delve into the minds of those who think, live and breathe outside the box. My name is Laura Calle and I will be your host for today. Welcome to Bits and Bytes, our series dedicated to innovation and technology at the hearts of society's change. By searching into the technology that drives transformation, we will meet the humans who revolutionize our lives bit by bit. Jamie Haywood is passionate about human and social development and has a wide range of international experience as a businessman in both regulated industries and scaling fast-growing businesses. Jamie studied philosophy and psychology at Oxford University and is the former Uber Regional General Manager for Northern and Eastern Europe, where he covered more than 70 cities and 12 countries, including the UK. In Uber, Jamie is credited with repairing relations with Transport for London after the regulator refused to renew Uber's license, and also was the primary mover behind the acquisition of dispatch systems provider AutoCab and the launch of the successful local cab service, through which Uber has expanded into more than 40 UK towns and cities by allocating jobs to private hire operators that use AutoCab's iGo network. Before joining Uber, Jamie was working for Amazon as the director of their electronics division in the UK, responsible for both the retail and marketplace businesses. And before joining Amazon in 2014, Jamie spent 15 years in telecoms, where he was managing director of Virgin Mobile in the UK and launched Virgin Mobile in India and Orange in Thailand. He was also CEO of Virgin Mobile in China for three years and started his career in Asia, working for the Swire Group. Jamie, that's a very impressive career. And as I told you before, I feel so honored to have you here today. And thank you so much for giving us one hour of your time to share your knowledge. You're, you're welcome, Lara. The, the, the pleasure is mine. Jamie, can you please start telling me a little bit more about yourself and also what are your future plans after leaving Uber? Sure. Um, so I was, um, I was born and brought up in Asia. So actually in Hong Kong, Singapore and Thailand. So my my early, very formative years um, were all spent in Asia. Uh, and you know, my mum's American and my dad's British, and they they'd met in Taiwan. Um, so although I sound very stereotypically English, um, actually, you know, I'm I come from quite a sort of cultural mismatch. Um, I was educated in the UK, hence the accent, and and as you said, studied psychology and philosophy at, at Oxford. Uh, quite a long time ago, and then went out back, went in back to Asia after university, and worked in a used car division in Taiwan, Coca-Cola in China. Uh, I did an MBA uh, at INSEAD, and have been spent the last twenty-five years leading technology companies in in Asia, and most recently um, in the UK with Amazon and Uber. Uh, I've got two two boys, um, eighteen, Elliot age eighteen, and Toby age sixteen. Um, and I'm very sort of happy living in London. Uh, they do miss do miss getting out to Asia, but you know that's the uh, that's the price of bringing up kids in a in a stable environment. Um, I left Uber about two months ago, and since then I've been writing a book. So I'm writing a book about the blueprint for the company of the future. So how do companies need to change to make sure that they uh, they're serving and improving uh, society in the future? Um, so looking forward to 
to getting that published in the next next few months. Wow, that's impressive. I can't wait to read the book because I know it's going to be absolutely amazing. You were telling me just before we started recording that you think that technology is shifting the way society works. And can you please tell me a little bit more about that, just regarding what you're writing in your book? Yeah, so the, I mean, I've worked in technology companies, in mobile telecoms companies, and, you know, in Amazon and Uber. And I think, you know, the general narrative about many of those companies, particularly Amazon and Uber, is, you know, really focused on some of the harms that they're, they're seen to to give so in Amazon, you know, a lot of the there's a lot of a lot of noise about how it's killing the high street. Or at Uber, you know, there's a lot of a lot of conversations around um, whether it provides good quality work and whether it's adding to congestion in the cities. Um, and I think those are really important conversations. But it's important to to put them in the context of a lot of the really good things that technology can bring to society and to communities. I mean, I think. You know, at, at Uber, um, we did a lot of work to make sure that, you know, driving with Uber was good work. And we we lent in and we provided, we were the first companies to provide drivers with pensions and sort of sick pay benefits. So, you know, there's 80,000 people who are driving with Uber now who have those benefits who wouldn't otherwise have had it. So, you know, it's just making sure that the, the conversation that we have about the impact of technology uh, looks at both positive and negative sides of, of what it brings to societies. That's a very interesting topic, and I really can't wait to read the book. When in your life had you started to think about leadership and how this purpose of leadership has evolved through your, your life? For me, leadership has gone, when I was younger, from very much a top-down conception of leadership. You know, leadership are those appointed to senior positions by even more senior people. Um, to a much more bottom-up conception of leader leadership, which is, you know, leaders are just those people who do things that attract followers. Uh, and I think that's much more dynamic. And I think it's actually a much more helpful conception of leadership. I think absolutely what you just said, because for me too, leadership is more about this mindset where you have an idea and you really try to make it come to life. And not only a role, but it's something that you can make day to day. So that's a very good like definition. It's true. And, and you know, the, the key thing about making an idea come to life is that always involves more than one person, right? I mean, and so, you know, you need to attract and engage and inspire people to come and work on, on that idea. And that, you know, that requires not giving them the idea and saying, implement it, um, but persuading and cajoling and inspiring them to to feel it's their idea and part of a, uh, a common endeavor that, that everyone is, is engaged in. I think the same as you are saying, and I really reached you out because I went to a speech you gave, a talk you gave at LSE, and I heard a very interesting phrase that I Im immediately put it in my phone, that was that you said that leading through principles was better than leading through people. Can you please uh, explain a bit further what you meant when you said that phrase? Sure. So at its most basic, leadership, you know, is about enabling groups of people to overcome collective challenges. And I think, you know, the challenge that many large growing companies face uh, is how they keep growing whilst avoiding two, two pitfalls. 
on the one hand, there's the pitfall that growth causes the company to lose control, right? And it, you know, a growing company is a little bit like a, a teenage kid, you know, they don't quite know how everything works and they're knocking into yeah. things and they're, they're knocking things over. And, you know, that experience, growth leading to a lack of control is very much, you know, what I've lived with for the last four years at Uber. Uber is, a, is the story of a company that grew too quickly and lost control. So that's one pitfall. On the other side is the pitfall, which, which actually is much more common, which is as companies grow and as they grow bigger, managers who want to control things become the bottlenecks to growth. And they do that because they, they instill bureaucracies and approval points and processes and controls um, that slow things down. And so I think critical to steering for any company wanting to steer this path you know, where you grow, but it's a controlled form of growth, is to try and develop leaders who really lead through principles and, and not people. And what that means is, you know, leaders who guide actions through sharing principles that allows others to act autonomously, and yet still in a consistent and coordinated manner. Um, you know, and the alternative to that, which um, I think companies need to avoid, is guiding actions because managers you know, are the bottlenecks through which all decisions come, which certainly gives you consistency, um, but it means that managers become the bottlenecks and everything slows down. I, I think one company that I worked in that did this just incredibly well uh, was Amazon. So I joined Amazon in uh, probably about 10 years ago in 2014. And when I joined, they had maybe 100,000 employees. And today I think they have over a million. And they've managed to grow, although they've, they've increased the size of the company 10x, they've managed to grow pretty consistently at around 20% a year. And I think one of the reasons why they've been able to achieve that, why they've grown without letting bureaucracy slow them down, is because they have a very uh, principles-based sort of conception of leadership. And I remember meeting... Um, this guy called Russ Grandinetti. So Russ ran all of the of Amazon's international businesses. And I remember when I met him, he said, uh, you know, one of the things he said was, every time I take a decision, I see it as a failure. And I was really sort of struck by this. I thought that's a very, that's a very strange, yeah. that's a very strange idea. So I said, you know, why? And he said, you know, because, you know, if someone has to come to me for a decision, it's because I haven't given them the principles that allows them to take the, to take that decision themselves, or they don't feel empowered enough to take it themselves, you know. And so he said, I then go back and look, what did I do wrong? That means that, you know, that decision next time is not going to come to me. It's going to be taken by someone autonomously because they're confident enough and, and they're empowered enough and they have the principles to, to do it themselves. Thank you. Jamie, when we were talking about mindsets and empathy, I also have heard another phrase that's from Gandhi. Mm -hmm. The phrase says that in satisfaction lies in the effort, not in the attainment, that a full effort is a full victory. I want to know what you think about this phrase, if you think it's correct, or if you think perhaps it's not just about the effort, but also in the results is like a bit of um, a victory. I think... You know, I, I, I lived in India for sort of three years and I actually visited Gashram, Gandhi's ashram in, 
Omnibus. So, you know, have huge respect for him as a, a spiritual leader. And I, I can see the benefit of the phrase as a philosophy for life. You know, satisfaction lies in the effort, not in the attainment. Um, but I actually don't think it's a very good one for business. And the reason for that is that for me, the purpose of a company is to solve society's hardest and most pressing problems. Um, you know, and good companies are the companies that are able to solve really hard, really pressing problems like COVID vaccines or, um, you know, building infrastructure in uh, core infrastructure in cities. Um, but, you know, it's only when you solve those problems that consumers, you know, are willing to pay for the solutions. And, and it's what, cons what companies earn from consumers that gives them the right to exist. So, you know, a company that makes the effort to pro pro solve a problem but doesn't, um, isn't really going to continue to exist and the problem will still be there. Uh, and so I think Gandhi's advice, you know, is probably a good path to enlightenment, but I'm not sure it's a good path to prosperity. You know, I think it's important that companies do actually attain solutions to problems, not just try to do so. Because yeah. I think that's the path to human progress, uh, even if not the path to human enlightenment. <laughs> that's true. I, I think I kind of believe the same because like for your life and well, the enlightenment a purpose, which is like a very broad concept. I think this will like be in a very be a very good phrase. But also I love what you said about what how a purpose of a company is to solve hard and pressing society problems and how the company really needs to achieve like some goals in order to solve those problems. So Yeah. And if it, if I mean the you know the brutal reality of the market means that if they don't solve the problems consumers won't pay the money for the solutions and they will earn the right to they will lose the right to exist so it's you know the you know companies realities is quite darwinian right it's and, and i think that's a good thing i mean i think you know the the pressures of competition promote better solutions uh lower prices more cooperative behavior um so even if you know we see competition as you know sometimes being you know red in tooth and claw um actually it's the, it's one of the core mechanisms that allow that forces companies and encourages companies to solve problems because that's where the money is that's true i have another question for you and is because you've lived in many cities around the world you told me that you lived also in asia for the first years of your life but you also yeah. have been living here for like the past years what is the main difference about leading a company in like the UK and in Europe and also leading a company in Asia? Um, so I think this goes back, you know, I think there are many differences. And I think to really understand the, the differences, it kind of goes back to the point I was making, which is, you know, a good leader needs to understand what their team needs uh, in the in the circumstances. And you know, if you don't read the cultural differences in your team, then the risk is you're just gonna you're just gonna get it wrong. And, and I can think of two two situations where I got it wrong. Um, you know, to, to to sort of illustrate the fact that it's it's really not easy to manage cross culturally. Um, one situation was when I went to go set up Virgin Mobile in India. So, 
you know, in the UK, um, you know, which is a much more egalitarian sort of working environment, um, I sort of developed a habit which I, I found useful and I think my team found useful to, to try and answer a question with a question, you know, so if they, if, if they came to me with a, with a question I, about what to do, I would say, so what would you do? And if they, if they came with what they thought they should do, I would say, well, why do you think that? And then, you know, a sort of almost Socratic dialogue, um, yes. which sort of worked in a UK context. But when I, when I transferred to India, um, this leadership was, was just style was just seen as indecisive and weak. It was, you know, it, that wasn't what they expected of, of me. Yeah. And my, ha my habit of answering questions with questions just made people uncomfortable. So, you know, I needed to try and then flex my style to not be dictatorial because I was still very conscious that they probably had much better answers to most questions than I did. Uh, but to not be quite so sort of Socratic in, in the way of dealing with things. So I think, you know, and, and so I had to flex there. Um, and, and another example sort of kind of related was um, when I went to Thailand. So Thailand... Um, and, and there I was setting up Orange's mobile network business. Um, and there, you know, again, I carried over a way of working from, from the UK. And, you know, I, I'd often make suggestions to the team about what I thought should happen, but I intended them as suggestions. I intended them as the start of a conversation, you know, how about we do this? Or why don't we do that? Um, and when I first arrived, the team would take, would often take my suggestions as kind of gospel truths and would go and implement them. And then, you know, when they went wrong, would come back to me and say, well, Jamie, it was just a terrible idea. Yeah. We knew it was a terrible idea, but we thought that's what you wanted to happen. And so again, I needed to sort of, you know, work out how I turned a suggestion, how I, how I framed a suggestion as something that they could criticize without it being seen as being uh, an insult to me as a leader. Um, and so I had to think about ways of, of doing that, you know, and so all of those, you know, there's a thousand cultural nuances and they're often very small, right? Because I, I do believe that people are fundamentally very similar at heart in terms of their motivations and their intentions. Um, but the kind of the cultural sort of skin through which their understanding is synthesized and behaviors are understood. Um, can spin things in very, very different ways. And if you don't understand that, you're just going to make all sorts of mistakes, uh, as, as I have done. That's, I think that's very useful. And you need to, again, as what you said, have a lot of empathy and really put yourself into the shoes of the people in the new culture and understand what they wish to happen and also how autonomous and also um, control or like the phrases and the words mm -hmm. you use you can be so i really like that answer um jamie i have another question for you and is you have been as you have told us a great leader through life which attitudes do you have in order to have a good life work balance and do you have any recommendations for someone starting on this path um i mean i think my first my first observation is that you know if a leader has made themselves indispensable then they're part of the problem um you know for the reasons that we we discussed earlier which is you know leaders should be 
working as hard as they can to empower others to act in sort of coordinated and consistent ways, not <laughs> becoming the bottleneck for decisions and decisions and actions themselves. Having said that, inevitably, you know, I, everyone <laughs> has times when their to-do list is much more than can be completed in a single day or a single week. And I think there, you know, my recommendation is to, is to sort of try and work out why that's the case, you know? And so I think the, the two things I'll ask myself, if I can just see my to-do list getting bigger and bigger is, you know, is this a one-off situation? You know, is there something in the, in that's going on at the moment that is just causing it to be busy or is there an underlying structural problem? You know, and if, if you're in a crisis, inevitably, you know, a leader's workload is prop a diary is going to get more full because, you know, the things are expected of a leader that, 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 that require their time. You know, if times are good and things are going smoothly and your to-do list is still long, then, you know, there's an underlying structural problem um, because, you know, probably that work and those decisions shouldn't be coming to you. And, you know, so there, I think that the question to ask is, you know, are all the things that are on your to-do list the right things for you to be doing? You know, are you the right person to be doing all, all of the things that that you seem to have inherited? And I remember there's a there's a very good um, book that I read quite a long time ago called Monkey Monkey Management, and it starts the opening chapter is this guy who's just sitting at his desk, overwhelmed by a huge intray and you know too much to do, and the the book sort of uses the analogy and it sort of says, look, every company is filled with problems and problems are like monkeys. What they want to do is they want to find someone uh, whose back they can jump on and then they just sit there, right? And when they sit there, they just get heavier and heavier. They make that person heavier and heavier. Um, and, and, and then the book says, you know, the, the difficulty is that these monkeys are invisible. So although they add weight to your shoulders and although they weigh you down, you can't actually see them um, naturally. And, and, you know, so then the whole book is the process by which uh, this poor manager who, whose work-life balance is completely out of kilter uh, sort of makes these monkeys visible and then takes them and puts them on the back of the people uh, who should be the owners of these monkeys, right? The people whose job is to solve that particular problem. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the, the final chapter of the book is him with a perfect work-life balance, feeling much better about things. But I think there is a truth to that. I, I think there is a real truth that often people who are well-meaning and trying to help will take on problems and take on ownership for actions that actually are not theirs. And when they do that, um, you know, they are creating structural problems in companies. So it's very important you know, to forcefully but politely uh, make sure you only take on the actions that are really that you're the best person to do and you don't start inheriting work from others because then actually you're changing the way work is done in the organization and that that can be a problem in itself i will absolutely read that book because it sounds very I interesting I, I think it's out of print now i mean it's it's a very simplified book but it's a really nice analogy sometimes when you when when you're in a meeting and you see someone just sort of burdened by too much to do, um, you think, you know, I, the picture comes to mind that they just have a thousand monkeys on their back and probably 900 of those monkeys shouldn't, should, should be on someone else's back <laughs> yeah, and stop somewhere, somewhere else in the organization. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good analogy. And 
also how you charge with things, as you said, that perhaps are not yours to solve, not only in work, but also in life, and how you can start getting off those monkeys off your shoulders and really pass them to the right person to solve them. Um, Jamie, do you have like a favorite failure of yours and how has that failure set up for success? Um, I have I have a most painful failure. I, I don't think I could yet call it a favorite. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, the experience that I found just hardest in my career was the failure of Virgin Mobile in China. So I'd I'd spent two years commuting from London to Shanghai to um, to sign a, a contract with China Unicom, which was one of the two two big tele mobile telecoms companies in China, to launch Virgin Mobile in China on their networks. And you know we signed the agreement, and it was the first agreement of its type ever in China. So it was quite a big deal. Um, and then I set about recruiting a team to launch the business. Um, and, you know, we recruited probably about 60, 60 or 80 people. And then we started sending out the invitations to the launch party um, to the great and the good of, of Shanghai. You know, a lot of the politicians and government, government leaders, including the mayor of Shanghai. Um, and initially they, they accepted and it was all good. And then about two weeks before the launch event, they just started sort of saying, oh, you know, I'm unable to attend. So we went from having a full launch event with everyone who, who we needed to attend to attending to having no one who had any political power <laughs> being willing to attend. And so this was a signal to me, you know, something was clearly wrong. Um, and I spent the net, you know, and, and I had a team of 60 people who I hired and persuaded to leave really good jobs to come and join me in this, this, uh, this, this China first. Um, and we spent six months trying to work out what had happened and trying to get support again. And we said, look, we've got a contract. Um, you know, why, why can't we launch? And they said, oh, you know, it's just not a good time. Um, and in the end, you know, after six months of sort of really trying to figure it out, we couldn't get approvals to launch. I had to lay the whole team off. So having hired everyone, I then had to yeah. ask them to go on half pay for three months. And then at the end of that three months, I had to lay them off and it turns out that what had happened although we only discovered this about six months later was china was in the process of restructuring the whole telecoms industry and they they wanted to sort of uh, carve up china unicom's assets and divide them up across different companies and the, the last thing they wanted was this small western company in the middle of a of an industry restructuring that they felt was essential so they they, you know, they couldn't tell us that that's that what that was the reason, but neither could they say that, that uh, we should launch. So that was just incredibly painful because, you know, personally, I'd taken my, my family out to China. Uh, I persuaded all these people to join. Um, and then, you know, the whole thing ended very painfully and very, very difficult in a very difficult way. And, and actually, you know, the, the biggest learnings there for me, which have proved useful was you know, there's just a danger of being over overly optimistic, you know, you need to kind of, while you're selling yourself the dream, you also need to be willing to look at the downsides with very, very clear sighted glasses. And, you know, in many industries, certainly in the telecoms industry, but in many of the industries, tech industries I've worked in, 
you know, the key thing to really understand is where do regulators and governments sit on some of these things? Because, you know, if a regulator or a government doesn't want you to exist, they can take you out of existence very, very quickly. And so you need to be very clear, clear sighted on that. Um, and actually, having said that, you know, and, and those have been useful learnings. I mean, a lot of the, the friction between technology companies and regulators that I've lived in, in in Uber more recently, you know, I think has been informed by those insights in China. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that's very difficult in those, those um, you know, failures is, the, you know, it's a real blow for your confidence. And I think, um, I think therefore, because because it is a blow for the confidence. Many people want to quickly turn away from the failure. And, you know, there's a psychological desire to not dwell on it too long uh, and to want to move on. But actually, I think it's really important to squeeze all the learnings you can out of your failures because, you know, you learn much more from watching a, a broke and understand and dealing with a broken company or, a you know, something that's not working than you do from studying something that, that is working. It's, you know, if you look at a watch, a broken watch, trying to mend a broken watch will teach you much more about how a watch works than just looking at one that's ticking away gently with no problems. Um, so I think failures are painful, difficult to difficult to confront and therefore difficult to get the learnings out of, um, but really critical because you know everyone in every career is going to have their fair share of failures. And if you don't have your fair share of failures, then you're not doing interesting enough stuff. Um, but the key is to learn from them. <laughs> That's a very good phrase. If you're not having failures, you're not your life is not being interesting enough. <laughs> I, I, it's, <laughs> a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a sort of misquote from there was a famous um, Formula One racing driver called Nicky Lauda, <laughs> yeah. um, who whose 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 sort of famous quote was, "If you're not go, if you're not if you feel you're in control, you're not driving fast enough." <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's very good, and I really think that failure or failures in companies should be like written and also very well known. There's a very interesting book that's called Black Box Thinking, and it's mm -hmm. about like the airline industry where they have been able to improve a lot because they have these black boxes and they see which are their precise like failures, and they compare with like the um, medical industry in which as doctors are not willing to say what happened because of course it's the reputation and everything, then it's not very like easy to start improving because they don't write and acknowledge their failures. So I yeah, I, yeah. and I think, I mean, we at Uber, we looked a lot at the airline industry because as you say, the sort of the results they've had in terms of deaths per kilometer flown is just so remarkable. Um, and actually I think, you know, it's, it's a, you know, a structural system for sharing information and a willingness to do that, understanding that there could be legal risks and, as you say, reputational risks and people, you know, CEOs could get fired as, as a result, but they somehow got this institutional practice where, you know, the information coming out of a black box in a crashed aircraft is shared and, and you know, the, the failure is remedied. But there are not many industries that have institutionalize that as well as the, the airline industry, because the downsides of making failures public are often so painful that That's individuals true. and companies just don't want it to happen. That's true. Uh, Jamie, if you could have a billboard, like a, a big postcard with anything on it, that will give a message to millions of people, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think one of the things that worries me most about the world today is we feel increasingly divided. Um, and I think, you know, that's, those divisions are kind of, you know, the divisions between all the companies and, and society, you know, which I, which I feel should be, are two institutions that should be pulling together in the same direction and, and sometimes are not. Those are national divisions that we see in places. Those are divisions between, you know, the people in the world today and the people who will be living in the world tomorrow when it comes to, to climate change. Um, and I think, you know, the importance of seeing ourselves as a kind of, as a broader community and to be able to work on shared problems collectively is so important um, that I feel worried when I look at, you know, the impact of that divisiveness on our ability to solve some of the biggest and hardest problems. So I think my billboard would say something like, uh, we're all in this together. <laughs> some kind of yeah. know, shaking of, uh, of trying to remind people what we all have in common, not what we all, uh, not in the ways we're all different. I love that. Yeah, it's like, remember everyone that we have, like this shared humanity and this shared world that is going to resist and survive because we all work together. <laughs> so it's a very nice phrase. Um, I have a question. We talk a little bit about some books you like, but mm -hmm. can you give me the book or books that have greatly influenced your life or the books you give most as a present, perhaps? Um, the, the book in the last, that I, that I, I think I've enjoyed the most and that has impacted the way I think most recently is it's actually the book called The Secret of Our Success. So it's, it's written by this Harvard anthropologist and it's a book about why humans are so successful as a species. And he, he, you know, he, he goes through and he says, with, with a lot of data and evidence, but he goes through and he says, look, it's not because we have bigger brain. It's not because we're more intelligent, because actually, if you look at the performance of chimps, uh, it's pretty similar to that of children. And he goes through the various sort of summaries. It's not you know, our ability to reason rationally. Uh, it's fundamentally, he argues, uh, that we're a cultural species um, and that culture is, is this way of encoding huge amounts of knowledge of information and cumulatively passing it on to others. And, you know, by culture, he means, you know, not just artifacts like fire and water carriers, but also, you know, institutions like law courts and the way we treat strangers in the street, right? It's a very broad definition of culture. And his argument is that you know, culture, just like our genetic inheritance, is is evolved, has evolved, and, and communities that had cultures that promoted success, you know, allowed more trust and better cooperation, allowed them to be more innovative, succeeded, and communities that didn't died. Um, and I, I remember reading this book. I read it probably I don't know eight years ago, nine years ago, and and reading it thinking. But this is also the story of companies. I mean, in other words, everything he said about companies is all about communities is also true for companies. You know, there's the same competition, there's the same uh, benefits that come from scale, there's the same need to cooperate and to innovate. And so, you know, I, I, I remember reading this book and thinking, wow, it's just a very different way of seeing what companies are. And it's really changed, you know, as social institutions and as, as communities, and it's really changed the way 
I've kind of managed and led and thought about what I'm doing uh, in ways that are very, I've, I've found very rewarding and very positive. Um, so it's the book I recommend to people because um, although it's not about business, it's about people and business is about people. So actually fundamentally it is a business book, even if uh, I think you didn't write it, meaning it to be one. That's true. And it sounds very interesting what he writes about. It's kind of what Yuval Harari has written also in his book, Sapiens, and how yes. like uh, we as humans are able to succeed because we've created fictions around companies and countries that have allowed us to work together. So it sounds very interesting and I'm for sure going to read it. Um, I have another question for you and it's regarding a habit or belief or, or behavior that has improved your life the most in the last five years or so. Um, I mean, for me, a lot of the last five years, and actually a lot of the last 15 years, um, has been about um, my family, bringing up kids, aging parents. And, you know, so certainly I've had a busy time at Uber and Amazon, but actually, you know, the when I look back on the last five years or decade, the, the most important things and the richest things and the things that have given my my life meaning and are really nothing to do with work. Um, it's about sort of, it's about my family and my friends and health. And, you know, so I think the older I get, the more I, ref and, and I, the more I reflect that actually, you know, family, friends and health are the most important things and everything else is pretty incidental. Um, and that sounds obvious, but I'm not sure I would, I, I would have said that when I was 25. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 The bringing and you know having of two sons and you know having parents who are aging just causes you to reflect on on what really is important and the answer is um it's not work i feel exactly what you said and i think that three things you talk about for me are also the most important like friends family and also health because even though one or perhaps I can feel young, you never know what's going to happen. And perhaps we give our family and our health and our friends for granted, but that's not always the case. Like things can change in a, in a second mm -hmm. and it's important to realize that. So thank you. And I have another question and is when you feel overwhelmed, what do you do? Um, so I'm, I'm an introvert. So when I feel overwhelmed, my instinct is to find a quiet space and to try and sort of try and think it out to sort of um almost kind of stop the stop the pressure and the noise um now that's very different from my wife so my wife is a is a is an extrovert and so when she when she feels overwhelmed or faces a, a problem or a challenge you know she socializes it so she goes out she talks to all her friends and for <laughs> yeah. her that process of kind of offloading and sharing the burden and sort of getting advice on what to do about it she finds very sort of rewarding and, and you know and actually I think her approach is much better than mine but my, <laughs> my sort of I think genetically I'm just predisposed I'm an introvert so I just do it in a different way um but it's probably not what I would recommend I think it's much better to <laughs> go out and talk to people that's very interesting because Yeah, like your wife is an extrovert, you are, you're an introvert and you have also been like, you've been a, a very successful businessman and like you always think about CEOs to be extroverts, but that's not always the case. Many of like amazing and successful CEOs are introverts and they see things a little bit different. And I was actually like listening to this podcast about Susan Cain, 
where she explained this and how a lot of CEOs are, in, are introverts and they, even though they have to talk with a lot of people to resolve challenges, they need long time in order to really like get their points and ideas together more easily. Hmm. So. I mean, I think I've, I had a, I had a coach who described me as a socially competent introvert, which I think is, is probably the, the right balance. Uh, well, sorry, sorry, it's a good description of me. And I, I think, you know, I think it, for me, introversion is, is about where you get your energy from. So it's, it's entirely possible to be an empathetic introvert and to be an introvert who is aware of sort of social cues and social circumstances. Um, I think the question, you know, and therefore I think leaders certainly need, as we discussed before, to be empathetic and they need to be able to read social situations. But for me, that's not, that's not really what introversion is about. Introversion is about almost the situation you described, which is, you know, where do you get your energy? And, you know, when things feel too much, when you feel like there's just a lot coming at you, what do you do? Do you kind of, do you look inwards or do you look outwards? And I, I think that's, therefore it's entirely possible to be a good leader and an introvert. Um, even though, as you say, uh, that's not usually what the, what the sort of stereotype is. Yeah, that's a very good answer. I have um, last two questions. Just the mm -hmm. first one is, what's the best recommendation or the worst recommendation you have heard in your area of expertise? Um, I think for this, is this for someone starting a career or? Yes, for someone starting a career. I think that the recommendation I would have for someone starting a career in technology is don't obsess about the job description or even necessarily the company that you're joining. Spend much more attention on the kind of technology, the technology wave you're trying to catch. And, and to make that sort of a bit more real, I think the, you know, the decisions that for me have made the biggest impact on my career well, firstly, the decision to go into mobile telecoms. And, you know, I happened to start in mobile telecoms in a strategy role, and I happened to start it at Orange. But actually, that was such a big wave, such a big technological wave, that I surfed it for 15 years in different roles, in different jobs. But, you know, what was common to all of them is that they were in mobile telecoms. And I think the same has been true in, in sort of, uh, with Amazon and Uber in, in sort of marketplaces and e-commerce. And, you know, so I think it's very easy if you're starting out to really pay attention to what's, um, what's front of mind, which is, you know, the job description or the company you're joining. But I think, you know, seeing a career as, as catching really big waves and a really big wave is one that, you know, ideally will coast you forward and propel you forward doing interesting, useful work for 10, 15, 20 years. I think that's unlikely to be a specific well it definitely won't be a specific role and it's unlikely to be in a single company so you need to sort of try and really decide what's the what's the technology wave you're catching if you if you want to try and chart a career in in technology thank you and the last question would be if you could interview anyone for this podcast who will it be i'm thinking hard about that it's such a it's such a fantastic offer i'm so delighted that you're going to <laughs> <laughs> um I would love 
I think someone older, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm very interested in sort of talking to people who are reflecting back on their life um, in retrospect. And I'd, I'd love to start, find someone who could do that, you know, making sense of their life through the lens of sort of big events. So, you know, if I think of some of the older people now who, who I would love to have them reflect on the lives they've lived, I think Henry Kissinger is a really interesting person. You know, he was there, he lived through the Vietnam, I think 90, I don't know, 98 or something, lived through the Vietnam War, Nixon's White House, you know, he's advised, he knew Joe and Lai, went to, with Nixon to go see China um, just as it was opening up. And, you know, I'd love to get his, his recollection of how he's lived and, and his interpreting of the current situation through that lens. So I think Henry Kissinger would be, would be a very interesting one. Thank you so much. Okay, Jamie, this is the end of the interview. I really thank you so much for your time, for everything you have teach us today and also for being so open with your knowledge and with your story so thank you very you're, much you're very welcome well thank thank you for inviting me laura it was uh, it was a lot of fun i hope i hope those who listen it listen to it find it uh, find it just a little bit useful <laughs> i hope that will be the case thank you so so much thanks for tuning and see you next week on talk tank